Podmo Podcast with Andy Case and special guest. Hello and welcome to the Bonmo Podcast. This week, Kev F. Oh, I've messed it up already, haven't I? Honestly. This week... Have you? That's not messed up by my standards. Keep going. (laughs) This week, Kev F. Sutherland is interviewing themselves while I sit back and take all the credit. You know, like how the industry works. And with that, over to Kev. Yes, it's very unusual to be interviewing myself. I say unusual to be interviewing myself. I actually make a career of talking to myself, (laughs) so it shouldn't be such a surprise. But I don't usually do it in this voice. Usually I do it in the voice of the Scottish falsetto sock puppet theatre, which Um, if anybody has seen the socks, you'll find all the more disturbing to hear my voice because the boys are Scottish and... So am I, but I've got an English accent. <laughs> anyway, uh, Andy. Oh, by the way, are you Andy? Yes. Yes, I am. Yes. Yeah, I just, because your spelling of Andy is like the mountains rather than the more common abbreviation of Andy. The common uh, Y people. Sure until yes, we spoke. yes. No, not the, the Y people. people exactly. Y people, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, yeah, no, uh, it, it is fascinating to hear your voice, actually, because uh, I, I mentioned to you for, um, when we were chatting before we recorded this that the first time I ever went to Edinburgh Fringe, um, people had been going on and on about how it's all brilliant and everything's brilliant. And I'd been to see a couple of shows that, for me, weren't my thing. And I was starting to feel a bit, uh, oh dear, have I sort of, you know, spent quite a bit of money to come and see things that I'm not going to laugh at. And then I just mm-hmm. purely, because this is my first experience and I didn't know a lot of them, I'd booked to see you. Um and it was just it was just a brilliant show. It was just absolutely superb. And it was my lasting memory of the first fringe I went to was your show, because it was just so in a good way, sort of insane. But it was just so brilliant and it just captivated the entire audience. And I just thought, yes, this this is why I'm here, this kind of thing. <laughs> well, this is the sort of thing that I like to hear. The Sox, <laughs> who have been performing at the Edinburgh Fringe since 2007, wow. remain uh, one of the Fringe's best-kept secrets. Because year after year, we will have people who discover the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre for the first time. And nothing gives me greater pleasure than hearing people say, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard, and uh, where have you been all our lives? Uh, the dis- disappointing thing is, year after year, people managing to have never heard of us. <laughs> it is... Um, I mean, it's quite good. We we sell out, and I make money by doing the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre yeah. at Edinburgh, and then uh, touring around theatres and doing comedy clubs as well. Uh, but that big break where you get to the stage where everybody's heard of you because you're on the telly is interestingly elusive. Mm. Although, as I'll probably uh, mention a little bit later, we've come that close to being on big telly a number of times. Uh, most recently, uh, last year with Britain's Got Talent. Oh, wow. Anyway, you've got some questions here. That would have been something. I've got a whole list of questions here. Yeah, sorry. I'm going, to answer, I'm going to answer these questions. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going to tell you any of the interesting stuff unless the interesting stuff comes up in the questions oh, that are on no. the list Hoist in front of me. Oh, you see. Oh, you see. <laughs> Michael Parkinson wouldn't have a list. No, Michael <laughs> Parkinson would pick his nose, scratch his ear, burp probably, and then... Um, and then uh, it'll all turn into a situation like uh, that that oh, who was the woman who did the interview with? Oh, the who went to it? So, off the name now. He wasn't good interviewing women. Day. I think. I think that's the. I'm giving you. I'm giving you an awful lot to edit out here, Andy. I can only apologise. No, no, anyway. it's uh, no. He wasn't. Um, he's. <laughs> he, he was good at interviewing men. I think that's what someone has said in a kind way of kind of remembering him. So, I think that's the way to leave yes, it, isn't it? I, 
I am struggling to remember that particular interview, which was circa 2003 when he came back. And oh, anyway, yes, <laughs> yes. let's not dwell on <laughs> Parkinson interviews that didn't go well. Uh, this is an interview which is not Parky. It's me plugging my own stuff. And um, first thing I want to tell you about is my favourite joke. And I don't really have a favourite joke, but when you cast your mind back to remember jokes, you remember things that are influential or outstanding. And one of the things that was really influential on my childhood has just popped up back on telly, and it's the goodies. Oh. I was raised on the goodies. I was raised by the goodies. The goodies started in 1970 when I was a little bit too young to be watching them. Yeah. But by the time of their second or third series, the one with Kitten Kong in, oh, wow. it yeah. suddenly became viewing for all the family. I think it was on a time of night when you could watch it with all the family, about 8 o'clock at night. And watching them again now, wow, the sexism, the racism, the casual throwing in of words like pufta are revelatory because you realise how much your childhood is being influenced by uh, the pernicious uh, yes. ambience of all the nastiness in the world yeah, around they, they, you. They, they, but, but with the best intentions. They, they were on the side of the angels. It's just the side of the angels was sexist and racist in, in the 1970s. Yeah, the, the, this is always going to be a topic of conversation. Do, do you... Um just burn it to the ground because we understand better now or do you accept it did exist but just sort of deal with that and explain why you realize now it's awful and I have the same when I'm talking to people about anything from yesteryear when I say I love that show or I love that film or and then just in the back of my head I'm going I probably should watch that again before I express my love and admiration because there is a chance there's something awful in there that I don't remember that I'm going to suddenly yeah. watch that film and suddenly go, oh, God, <laughs> no, I should and not like there that is, film. There is a big question about what you show and how you show it. Mm. And I would, I would distinguish between stuff you make available to discerning adults and stuff you throw, you show on maybe the most mainstream television or that you show to children. Mm. Uh, YouTube and TikTok are a big question mark and grey area because I don't know how you restrict or what you restrict or can you restrict. Well, but when it comes to stuff being archived, available and shown, I would archive and make available and show everything with the caveats. That's what currently happens on the channel we're watching the goodies on, which is a thing called That's TV, mm. one of the cable channels. And they preface it with the little box saying, this reflects the attitudes of the age. Some of the people might think, find things offensive. And it, she says, uses discriminatory language and so on. Uh, on certain episodes of The Goodies, they make a bigger one, a full screen one. And then you know you're in for a good one because uh, there's also a couple of episodes that they don't show. They don't show wow. the one with the black and white minstrels and they don't show the South African one so far. Who knows? Maybe they will. Uh, on Talking Pictures TV, I've seen Laurel and Hardy in blackface. I've seen Fred Astaire in blackface. So there's things get shown. And, of course, I've watched YouTube videos uh, explaining to me about the Tom and Jerry episodes that don't get shown. And because it's being described in a sort of academic way, that's okay. Uh, anyway, we've, we've gone away from talking about me and we've talked about the goodies. And I was going to tell you what gags influenced me from the goodies. And the ones that I remember better are, of course, the ones from the books because we didn't get to see the TV shows. And the TV shows 
after their time weren't repeated. This is what has really frustrated the two surviving goodies, the three of them until recently, was the fact that all the way through the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, they didn't get shown. They didn't get repeat money, whereas their mates on Monty Python and all of those sitcoms like Faulty Towers and, and Porridge and the Good Life, they were getting repeated constantly. Yeah. And the goodies weren't. In fact, the goodies didn't even get a DVD release until the edition that I've got, which is from sometime in the last uh, 15 years, I think. Yeah. So it's really frustrating to them. Uh, so the things I remember are from the books, and uh, the thing I remember most was uh, the words of White Christmas. They did a thing with the words of White Christmas, which I subsequently did on stage. I did it at a student cabaret, and I've wheeled <laughs> it out subsequently. Uh, and it is um, the name, supposedly the names of the cast list of White Christmas. And when you read them, it's Emma Dreaming, Arthur White, Christmas. Jess Likedy, Juan Sai, Hugh Sterno, Wendy Treetops Glisten, double-barrelled name, Anne uh, Child Wren, double-barrelled, Liz Ann, and then Two Ears Label, which is Bing Crosby, yeah. uh, Cindy Snow, Emma Dreaming Off a White, Christmas Wit, A Ferry, Christmas Car, Die Right, uh, Major Daisby, Mary Ann Bright, Anime Hall York Reese, quadruple barreled names, Mrs. B. White. That um, was so influential, I subsequently performed it myself on stage because <laughs> I thought it was so good. The lyrics of, or the cast list of White Christmas by Bill Oddy and Graham Garden. Wow, that's yeah, that's a good answer. I, I think, uh, not, not cycling back to what we were just discussing, but, but just taking the, uh, the good bits out of, out of it is, is, is you yeah. know, I think it's still a positive, um, but just recognising it wasn't all good um, and we're better now. Well, we're getting there now. Uh, I wouldn't say we're there. Yes, I mean, from there, but. as you know, as well as doing the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre, I write and draw comic books. Yes. and I've got them. Work, in fact, just to say, people, I do have them. <laughs> Excellent. And as well as having been in the Beano and been in Marvel Comics and Red Dwarfs, uh, Smegazine mm. and Zig and Zag Zogazine and the Gladiators comic and lots of stuff you've never heard of. I have most recently been doing graphic novels adapting Shakespeare. And wow. on the subject of comedy not dating well, the comedy in Shakespeare mostly doesn't date well because comedy doesn't. And maybe comedy shouldn't because mm. comedy has got to make you laugh on the day you hear it. That's live stage comedy. Written comedy is a different thing. P.G. Woodhouse and Jerome K. Jerome are funny a hundred years later because they're a different sort of comedy. They're written comedy, yeah. but uh, yeah. written to be read comedy. Yeah. The yeah. stage comedy, live comedy, which is what Chaucer largely was, he read his poems out, and what Shakespeare definitively is, it's not, you're not supposed to read it. That's why people have difficulty in school doing Shakespeare because they sit down and make you read a text, which is like reading a recipe book instead yes. of re eating the food. And so... Um, Things like the Porter scene in Macbeth, which Stuart Lee has recently rewritten for the RSC's latest production. Yeah. Um, that will be very interesting to see because it's a stand-up comedy routine in the middle of a play. And the version that we've got in the, the first folio or the quarter or whatever we've got is one comedy routine about answering the door and at the door that's an equivocator and the equivocator was somebody these guys had been hung drawn and quartered for uh speaking 
out about religious and political matters. Yeah. And uh, so it's sick jokes about recently deceased people. So in my version of Macbeth, which is set in 1977, I have Billy Connolly, and he's doing jokes about the recently deceased Mark Boland, Bing Crosby, and Elvis Presley, which is literally what Shakespeare would have wanted. But if you just take the actual lines from the 1590s and tell them now, it's not funny. Um, Shakespeare's farcical plots are even worse because they're a sort of thing which people expected at the time, got at the time, thought, I kind of know what's coming here, it's great. But you look at it now and it's like, oh, God, that's just, that's yeah, tired. I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I did, um, I, I was forced <laughs> forced to read Shakespeare and I didn't really get it, despite how much, and he was, he was a good English teacher and he did work really hard to explain it. And I did get some of it, but it's not until you see it live that you go, oh, I understand what's going on better now. Um, and yeah. yes, you're right to say, you know, quite rightly, things that were, written back then being modified quite right too and i've been to see some recently where they have clearly you know taken on board that we we need to be better now uh, and we need to continue to get better um and we and therefore they, those things need to be modified um and updated yeah you know exactly i mean there's some things like uh, kiss me kate or uh, the taming of the shrew which um uh, kiss me kate actually did a very good updating of it in the 1950s but, um, you know, the sexual politics of the olden days and uh, Merchant of Venice, which is one that I'm planning to do next. I have it on my, I've, I've roughed out how I would do uh, Merchant of Venice. I'm doing it as the Merchants of Leicester, oh, wow, which brilliant. is another one of my, ni- it's another one of my 1977 set stories. But this time Shylock is Indian. And so we tackle the racism, which means I, I have to get people involved as consultants here because I'm uh, not Indian, although I am from 1977 and I was raised in Leicester. So there's that. But um, it's a difficult thing to do. But I think that's what you have to do, because uh, Shylock and the ghetto of uh, Venice in the previous centuries. But, uh, Shakespeare had most likely never met a Jew because they were not allowed in uh, everybody had been banished from, uh, you know, it's like Suella Braverman was in charge. Uh, <laughs> everybody had been banished and sent to Rwanda. Uh, and so he hadn't met Jew, he hadn't been to Venice, and he had no first-hand knowledge of the ghetto. So in a sense, my research can't be any worse than Shakespeare's research. Uh, but the point I would be trying to make would be at some points similar to his and some points different from his. He wasn't, well, he was looking at religious discrimination but he's looking at it with one set of goggles on. I want to look at it with another set of goggles yeah, on, yeah, perhaps I... much more of an ally than I think Shakespeare may have been being. Although, you know, uh, Does a Jew Not Bleed is a um, very interesting uh, speech, and there's lots of sympathetic stuff while also making your central character um, a victim and a sort of clownish character. Complex. Complex is the word. Complex, yeah. And with comedy. It's, it's interesting you yeah. said we um sorry, I appreciate we haven't got off question one yet, but but um just quickly. <laughs> we had uh, recently <laughs> had quite a lively discussion around um, writing scripts and about can you you know that people should engage and speak to people in that world, in that lived experience, in that because you can't you, you can write what you think that situation is but you know me i'm yeah i'm a a white middle class man um i wouldn't have the the gall to think i can write someone else's lived experience without less making some kind of effort you know of of speaking speaking to people talking to people say 
what's it really like? What's what's day to day really like? What, you know, how do I represent this properly for you? You know, rather than going, I know best. You know, I'm just going to write it down, and it turned into what I'd say is quite a lively debate. Let let's uh, uh, <laughs> let's leave it at that. But it but fundamentally, yes, you you can write it, but but. I think it's is recognizing now that you know you can't compartmentalize and and you you need to reach out to people you need to have those discussions you need to have that education um because yeah. you every writer who's r- yeah writer who's writing uh, narrative drama and comedy uh, like I've been doing is trying I think to write universally you you very rarely are pitching just for a niche audience I mean okay people sing to the choir but um, I certainly am trying to tell a story where any reader would come to it and see a repre- representation of the world. And then if I've got opinions and attitudes to share through it, they would understand my opinions and attitudes and maybe like them, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, but yes, you have to then, when you're writing universally, include characters which aren't you and have no, you, know, you have nothing in common with. Yeah. Uh, Macbeth is, would be the one I have most com- in common with because it turns out I'm related to him. No. The real Macbeth was in the clan Findlay. My middle name, Kev F. Sutherland, is Kev Findlay Sutherland. Uh, and our middle names are all old family names. So I am a Findlay. And so somewhere down the line, I'm related to old stabby stabby death Beth, Mr. Macbeth. <laughs> that's so funny. that's the one I've got the closest allegiance to. I'm, I'm you know, Scottish history and all. Oh, but, that's wonderful. Like, for example, Midsummer Night's Dream Team. Um, my LGBTQ cast, which is a large part of the cast of Midsummer Night's Dream Team, um, I have to, you know, operate as an ally from the outside, and uh, I'm writing other people's learned experiences of being those characters. Yes. But then, I have always had the same thing. If I'm, for example, just writing a female character or someone who is of a different ethnicity, other people's details are complicated, but so. I have to study what's complicated. I have to try and understand what's complicated and alien to me. And then I have to try and present it. And if I get it wrong, like my uh, Tales from the Bible, uh, which is on, I'm pointing it to on the shelf behind me. Uh, I was paid by Bible Society to add, adapt these Tales of the Bible into comic strips. I've done the book of Esther, was the first one I did, and story of Joseph and the book of Ruth. And so these are all Jewish stories with Jewish characters or Moabite characters or Mennonite characters. Uh, I'm not Jewish. I'm very much not Moabite or Mennonite, <laughs> maybe distantly down the ancestral tree. And so, you know, I'm also writing when my characters speak, they're speaking in a way which draws a lot on 20th century uh, Jewish comedic tropes. You know, one of the characters sounds like Larry David. Another character is a Disney princess. And uh, Joseph is kind of played by Seth Green, looking a bit like a young Woody Allen. And so, you know, I'm drawing on other people's tropes, which maybe I have no right to write in. But on the other hand, I'm writing comedy in the 21st century. How can you help but draw on all the things that influenced your comedy writing in the past? And anyway, I'm writing Jewish stories. I've got to write Jewish characters. So very interesting. I have to put on, I do a lot of cultural appropriation. That's basically what I do for a living. I learned that from the goodies. <laughs> Yes, you you can't help you can't help what's what created you, can you? I uh, one of the podcasts I've done um, a, a, a sci-fi podcast. A couple of people got in touch, going, "It's a bit Douglas Adams in places." Like, yes, yes, you're right, it is. And do you know why it's a bit Douglas Adams in a couple of places? Guess who I grew up with? <laughs> so well, exactly. We're currently wa- we're currently watching Good Omens on oh yes, um, on the telly, yeah, yeah. and um, you know. 
both Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman have been told before now, that's a bit Douglas Adams. And Douglas Adams, in turn, would have been told, that's a bit P.G. Woodhouse uh, and a bit Monty Python. In Mm. fact, he he was definitely told things were a bit Monty Python. And Monty Python were told things were a bit goodies. Mm. Uh, No, a bit goon show, sorry. A goon show, yes, yes. Uh, and the goon, Spike Milligan, was told his stuff was a bit Flan O'Brien, or, <laughs> if he was lucky, a bit James Joyce and Samuel Beckett. And so it goes. And so it goes on. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Right. Um, question two, which we've just managed. Oh, yeah. Well, we, we've done the comedians and sketches that made me laugh. Now, the most outrageous request I've ever um, received for attending a gig... Uh, I've not really received. I can tell you that there is a direct correlation in between uh, between how much you get offered and paid for a gig and how well it goes. (laughs) This may not be universal, but if anybody's ever done corporate comedy gigs, um, if you're getting paid a lot, expect the worst. Uh, A corporate comedy gig at Christmas, you ask for more money than you do at any other time of the year because it's going to be shit. It's going to be put on by someone who's never put on a comedy gig before and they will not have got the sound right. They will not have got the lighting right. And you'll go away with a a four-figure sum, in my instance, and and yet tail between your legs. Worst gig I did like that was actually before I was doing the Scottish Falsetto Socks, although they've done a couple of Christmas corporates which have been toilet. Um, (laughs) I did one when it was just stand-up, just me, and it was this corporate gig uh, at the end of the day, when all the salespeople had done all their boring stuff, and then they were in this big bar. There's 350 of them, so too many people. They can't see you. They can't hear you. They've yes. been chatting and drinking for hours. They put a comedian up on stage, and I had a microphone, so I had a chance. But I wasn't spotlit, and I was silhouetted against a screen with the rotating company logo behind me. So no comedian. No comedian could have... Uh, I mean, you survived the gig. I performed for however long I was supposed to perform, for 25 minutes. But to the ignorance of all concerned, oh. even if you could have craned your ear to hear me, you would not have found it an edifying experience. So, um, yeah, that's the deal. If you're offered uh, a corporate, uh, think about <laughs> it, and, and you will learn. You learn a lot from corporate comedy gigs, I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah, I yes, I've I've heard that before. It's um, yeah, expect the worst, really, but just take the money and uh, smile. Yeah, yeah. Now, if only one comedy festival was allowed to survive, which one would it be? I say the Leicester Comedy Festival. The Leicester Comedy Festival was the first comedy festival. Wow. A lot of people, when you talk to them, especially as punters, think of the Edinburgh Fringe as mm. a comedy festival, and it's not. There are. There is a lot of comedy within the Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, comedy has come in the last 30 or 40 years to dominate the Edinburgh Fringe, but it's not what the Edinburgh Fringe was founded for, and it's what, not what the Edinburgh Fringe is all about. And yes. the Edinburgh Fringe would be better off with less comedy in it. Comedy has done more damage to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe than anything else. It's done more good for it. People go to see the comedy, and then they discover the theatre and the music and the dance and the art. Yes. But uh, the Edinburgh Fringe is not a comedy festival. Uh, so, but the <laughs> Leicester Comedy Festival, formed by Jeff Rowe in, I'm going to say 1995, I'm probably going to be wrong, um, is a brand leader 
it has led the way in other towns all over the UK, probably all over the world, having their own comedy festival because he showed it could be done. Yes. It's yes. on at a time of year when nobody would ever put a festival on, February. It's on in a town which most people would say you're not going to be attracted to because it's Leicester, where, by the way, I grew up as a teenager. Um, I'm from Aberdeen originally, but we came down to Leicester when I was very young. And so I know Leicester and Leicestershire well. And I would have said it's the last place to uh, <laughs> to do a comedy festival. Myself and a friend used to run a comedy club in Leicester at the end of the 1980s before I moved away to the southwest. And um, we were able to do a show a month if we were lucky. And we were able to fill a room which only held 50 people. And that was all of the comedy that I would have thought you could have got away with. The Jeff Rose Leicester Comedy Festival has become uh, a world standard festival, having run for so many years. It's had international uh, acts of yes. the highest stature and has showcased the most creative and diverse events. Diversity being a particularly significant thing that it's had to push for because it's Leicester. And Leicester is... Uh, a, a diverse city ethnically and historically, uh, religiously. It had such great diversity. The first uh, Jain temple is in Leicester. The first Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses from 150 years ago, that was in Leicester. Wow. That's all Leicester tradition. But for the first decade of the Leicester Comedy Festival, the audiences appeared to be all white, <laughs> uh, quite where the descendants of the Windrush, gener Windrush generation were, you don't know, quite where all the Indis, Indian and... Um, Muslim and other ethnicities were in the audiences. It was hard to tell. That has very much changed. And now the uh, diversity of the acts and the diversity, most importantly, of the audiences has um, changed. London has played a big part in that, but Leicester has played a significant part in that, for which it should be proud of. Every festival could do what the Leicester Comedy Festival continues to do, then we all benefit. Ah, oh, brilliant answer. Yeah, that's a brilliant answer. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. Do I have a lucky totem that has to attend every show with me or that I have to use to write? And no, I don't. Fair enough. I am pretty functional and uh, realistic about the way I work. When I'm putting on my shows, the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre, it's quite complicated as far as props are concerned. Yes. And so the only lucky totems I need to have are the right props. <laughs> if I've forgotten anything, I then have to improvise or ad-lib to cover up for it. And I've forgotten some very important parts of the set before now. <laughs> In fact, earlier this year, 2023, when I've been performing the Scottish Falsetto Socks for 15 years, yeah. I forgot the tartan bit of the set. Now, the Scottish Falsetto no. Sock Puppet Set is a metal frame, which is actually an Ikea clothes rack, which they don't do anymore. I've only got two of them. <laughs> and over this clothes rack, I have a plastic assembled frame, which gives me a, a proscenium arch yes. um, wrapped in tartan, which my wife sewed. And then I've got a tartan sheet, which goes down the bottom part, and that conceals me. It conceals the props. It conceals my notes. And... Um, Without that, <laughs> we haven't got a set. You've got a man sat in a chair. <laughs> so when I arrived to do a gig in Paisley, a couple of gigs in Paisley, I had to borrow a travelling rug from somebody and we had to clip it over my set with um, clothing, cloth pegs. Brilliant. In order to do it. Uh, so you can get away with it, 
But uh, if you've got a prop-heavy show, uh, the most important thing to remember is just everything. And don't have too many things. I, I've been very foolish over the years. No totems, but but just be prepared to improvise. Uh, yes, exactly. And um, the totem is an interesting thing. I Do people have many things that they feel they have to have with them? I know a couple of people who've, um, they particularly on this question, a couple I've recorded already where um, they've sort of said no, then they've gone, oh, no, hang on a minute. Um, there was this when I started out, or actually I do always take that with me. So I, I don't know if it's necessarily a, it's instantly obvious that they always carry it with them, but I think when they start thinking about it, there's some, like you've said, no, not really, uh, just me, which is fine. Um, but I do know a couple of people who have things um, or you know that they, they feel they need to have around them. Um, and it becomes that if I don't. And I think that's maybe possibly more when you start out sometimes, maybe rather than if you've been in that world for a long time. Um, and uh, I was talking to a, someone was saying about another comedian who's gone about their, their shoes um, and they're either lucky or they're cursed, you know, and that that's how <laughs> they were treated, you know, um, depending on how the gig went. So it's, yeah, uh, there's a couple, but I, certainly... People like yourself who've been around in comedy a lot longer are a bit more, no, not really. Um, you just sort of crack on, you know, uh, and get on with it, which is yeah, it's, pretty fine. It's, yeah, functional. Functional is the thing. When I do my comic art masterclasses, going into schools and libraries, teaching kids how to do comics, I need to wear a shirt, like the one I've got today, with a pocket. I use my breast pocket so much that if I end up accidentally in a shirt without a breast pocket, <laughs> suddenly, so many <laughs> things become part of your sense memory. And I think that's the thing that performers will find with a lot of things. Uh, if you're acting uh, and you're doing uh, physical routines, it's, you do, you're not thinking about it, you're just doing it. Yeah. And then you can be very much thrown by reaching for the thing that should be there. The, the, the children are wondering why the why the funny man keeps pretending he's got a breast pocket and dropping things on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Now, if I could pretend a sketch or a TV show or a film was written by me, uh, which one would I lay claim to? Um, I'd like to lay claim to the talents of loads of people better than me. Um, <laughs> And there's so many films that uh, I admire, and frequently it's not down to one person. Yeah. And I envy people who've been part of a team that makes it work. Yes. Um, so, for example, the films of uh, the Monty Python team, uh, Christopher Guest's improv films, and then directors and writers who've managed to work together with an ensemble to make something brilliant. Like, uh, I watched very recently Planes, Trains and Automobiles. Oh. And uh, it's a sublime piece of comedy work on the screen. Yes. But if you said, which one of those people would you like to be? Would you like to be John Hughes, who wrote and directed it? Well, yeah. Mm. But then part of his writing and directing was finding John Candy and Steve Martin and the other people and the other players. Yes. And then the luck that makes it happen. I mean, a film like Tootsie is a really favourite comedy film. And then when you watch the DVD extras and you realise how any film like that could have gone so wrong yes. had it not been for the stroke of luck. Elaine May came in uncredited and did some rights on it. Bill Murray does improv work. Dustin Hoffman brings so much of himself to it and then cuts so much of himself out in order to make that work. And then Sidney Pollock uh, writes it, uh, directs it. I um, can't remember who writes it. Um, 
so I would like to be able to say I was part of a team that made something great because I work solo. I've tried working in teams. I did a show called The Sitcom Trials where I worked with other writers and performers and we put sitcoms on the stage and then the audience voted for the thing they liked the best. I loved being part of a group, but I could never successfully collaborate. I've tried collaborating and I end up just rewriting other people's work and annoying everybody (laughs) or creating the Scottish Falsetto. The socks were created out of the sitcom trials because I'd written a script and I didn't want the actors to get it wrong. And so I turned up at a writer's meeting with a couple of socks on my hands, ducked underneath the table and put on a silly voice. Turned out then I had the comedy act that would make uh, the rest of my performing career. But I would love to have collaborated. I would love to be part of the team who do ghosts. Oh, ghosts is yes. the, 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 not the American version. That's not very really good. But the British yes. sitcom ghosts to be part of that team. I mean, they're all great individuals, but think about it. Not one of those individuals has made a comedy as great as Ghosts, however great Matthew Bainton and um, uh, uh, and the others and Jim Hoyk and the others are. They've done great stuff on horrible histories. And some of them have written books and done uh, routines and characters on their own, but none of them's as good as Ghosts. Uh, similarly, I'd, I'd say the Monty Python team, even, you know, however great John Cleese's and Michael Palin's solo work was, would they have got the chance to do them if they hadn't gone through the Python mill and come out the other side? Don't know, yeah. hard to say. Yeah. So, blah, blah, I, blah. I would love to have collaborated. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. On the, on the few things I've been involved in filming and things, it's, it's so much a team effort. You might have someone's name in the frame um and it, it's it's one of the things obviously i'm, I'm slightly more f- uh, film obviously which is why i'm so fascinated speaking to people in the comedy world because it's just it's not my world but i'm just so fascinated by it and how it works but when they have documentaries on one of the let's say one of the big directors or something and and it's always slight i always feel it's slightly slanted towards it was only because of them that this all worked. And it's like, no, no, it's because it's them and all the great people that surrounded yeah. them that it worked. It, it definitely would not have worked if it was just them. It's just, you know, uh, even yes. watching a recent, I don't think it's that recent, but the, a documentary popped up on 2001, which is you know one of my favourites. Um, and they're talking about how they got round some of the, because it was, it was basically all real props, uh, real things. They didn't use much. Um, well, there wasn't CGI then, but they didn't use much in the way of... Um, non-real props shall we say and even the one with the floating pen where they're saying well we just it was a glass screen and a double-sided sticky tape had just come out so you know that's how we sort of stuck the pen to the glass and made it look like it was floating in space and then the and the lady could just take the pen as if it's floating and you say yeah and and that's a whole load of people sat there around the table going how do we make it look like that pen's floating so yes of course there is maybe you could say perhaps a driving force, but I've done filming and I've always listened to people, whether it's, you know, the DOP or the lighting or the sound or even the, you know, the actors or, or makeup or whoever who've gone, wouldn't it be better if, or perhaps if we, or, or whatever that conversation yeah. is and listen and learn from it. Cause often they've got a really good point. You know, you've got it into your head about, I want to do it this way. And, and someone's going to say, yeah, but it, wouldn't it be better if it came, you know, that angle or, we slightly changed it yeah. to this. And you go, actually, that's a... You see, this, this, this could be the, the downfall of a lot of my work, that I work entirely solo. <laughs> and so with the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre, I write everything they say and I say everything they say. Um, Indeed. 
collaboration can possibly improve work, but it also uh, stops people becoming megalomaniacs. I'm a megalomaniac. The, <laughs> the reason I've got these graphic novels adapting Shakespeare is my starting point was how I would stage it. Uh, Finley Macbeth was the version of Macbeth that I had envisaged as a stage play. I don't have the wherewithal to put on a stage play. And the what would happen in the collaborative process may change my vision anyway. Uh, not that that would be a bad thing. I, I, I admire, as I've said, the collaborative process. I would love to see what happened. But as it is, the version that appears on, my, on the page of my graphic novel, that is what was in my head to begin with. Similarly, when uh, Prince of Denmark Street, when I just uh, envisaged Hamlet as a musical, um, and they're all punk rockers, that's what ends up on the page. Again, something else would happen if you tried to stage it. And you've read William Goldman's Adventures in the Screen Trade, the, phrase, the book that gives us the phrase, in Hollywood, nobody knows anything. Yes. And he tells stories of his successful films, like All the President's Men, and his less successful films, like The Great Waldo Pepper. And the same people are involved, mm. the same great directors, the same great actors in a couple mm. of these instances, and him, the these great screenwriter who is at his, at his peak he is one of the most sought after screenwriters yeah. he can do no wrong mm. and then his, in his next movie he does wrong <laughs> that is to say no one knows anything the yeah. reason that, that a film doesn't work after a film that has worked is beyond people he does butch Casty and the sundance kid and then he does the great waldo pepper and the great waldo pepper doesn't work afterwards with hindsight they're able to say why it didn't work but the reason we're watching the DVD extras of films like Tootsie and uh, <laughs> films like uh, Planes, Trains and Automobiles yeah. and not watching the DVD extras of Ishtar and The Great Waldo Pepper is beyond us. Yes. Nobody went into making a film badly. Nobody no. sets out and says, right, this time we're going to fuck it up. Nobody says, let's make Marvel's Secret Invasion really bad so that it will be the least watched program ever on Disney. So least watched that Disney actually send out a press release telling people how few people watched this program. That must be a really bad program. You don't have a meeting to decide to do that in advance. <laughs> that just, at the end of the day, is a thing that happened. Yeah. I, it, yes, you're absolutely right. And, and while collaboration is grand, I mean... Uh, for instance, uh, Monson Jackson podcast, I've, I've written that on my own, and maybe it would have been better if I collaborated, but I made a decision, no, this, I want this just to be me writing this, um, and I'm quite happy with it. And I'm sure people could have chipped in and gone, it would be better if, or... But actually, I've really enjoyed that whole, this is just going to be me writing my thing. Um, and, and you're right, it, 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 it either works or it doesn't work, and, and no one really has a clue. And I know certainly one of the endless conversations in the script world is when a script or sorry when a film is considered not great a lot of it is poured onto the script saying well it was a bad script or poor script and then there's always a lot of reaction about well the original script was pretty good but when the studios got involved or when the you know producer got involved the director or whoever and they've massacred the script and they've chopped out bits that shouldn't have been chopped and you think there's never a clear path because you could argue that maybe the original script wasn't that great, but it just got picked off the pile that day. You could say the original script was great, but it got ruined by people who make films getting involved. Um, and it's just, yeah. there's no ending to that conversation, unfortunately. It's just... 
Exactly. And, and there's no one process that works. People think, oh, we got it right this time. Let's use the same process again. But no, for every writer's room which produces work greater than the sum of its parts, you also get a camel. A yes. horse designed by committee. We've all seen yeah. work that seems to be committee written. We've all seen sitcoms because the Americans developed this writer's room process 60, 70 years ago. Yeah. It works when it works. Oh. And then sometimes it just turns out formulaic, not very good stuff yes. because the setup is all well and good. But you need more than that. You actually need originality. You need quality. You need a team that gels. You need the person who's calling the shots not to be calling the wrong shot. Um, it's, it's so very, uh, well, says he, who's never successfully collaborated. He can spot bad collaboration when he sees it. I don't, I don't, I don't, I think either is a perfectly viable way to operate. I mean, um, I can't remember what, which show it was, but... Someone was telling me at one point there was 24 people in the room or working on this one episode. And you think that's that's just too many people in one room trying to work on one episode. That's that's too much collaboration. You know? Well, what I love are there's uh, YouTube tutorials and, and some lovely things I've seen where they've managed to interview every writer. There's one particular film I've watched a couple of times where every writer has given their tips on uh, plotting, yes. on characterization, and the writers contradict each other. You'll go from uh, the guy who uh, is in charge of Breaking Bad, and he says about how the team have to work on the, with the post-it pads on the wall, and they have to have everything meticulously plotted, all the story arcs, all the series, before anybody can go away and write a word of dialogue at all. Yeah. And then I think the next person who spoke was Greta Gerwig, and she said, I couldn't do that, because I need the characters to, to tell the story for me. Yeah. I could never have the whole thing plotted right the way ahead. Uh, everybody's got their own ways of, of working. A, a really good book to read uh, for writers... Um, who are wanting to get inspiration is Stephen King on writing. Stephen King yeah. tells you the whole story of how he came to be Stephen King, how he came to write these things, how these things came to be, how the breaks he got and the, the luck, things that went well, things that didn't go well. You come away with it thinking, ah, oh, I know how to write like Stephen King, except that the only way to write like Stephen King is to have had Stephen King's life. Yes. Um, there's no other way around it. There's no other life lesson you can take away. Uh, blah, blah. No, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. He does a nice thing, actually. I don't think still, if it still happens, I assume he does. You can, um, what's the what's the word? Um, rent the rights to one of his short stories. It's like a dot. It's called a dollar um, event where you can basically make the short film. It has to obviously be credited to him and everything. You can't pretend it's yours, but you can, you effectively buy the copyright. I think for a year, um, so you can make it and put it on. Um, just like for starting out, you know, you're just basically... And I thought, well, that's a really nice thing to do, isn't it? It's not in perpetuity. Yeah. You can't claim it for life. But a nice way to make something and show your skills, not not necessarily in the writing arena, but in the creating something arena and just and just having that start. And you just pay... Well, it certainly used to be a dollar um, you had to pay, uh, which is mad, obviously, in this day and age. But um, <laughs> I just like the idea of, you know... Pay us a dollar, it's just a token amount, off you go make it. And I thought, what a nice thing to do for people who are just starting out. Who, who, you know. Very good. Yeah, so... Now, yes. so far, we have managed to get through six questions out of a list of 12. I'm going to blitz through the next yeah, questions come on. and see how well Let, we go. Let's see how we do. Name one time you were proud of your work and why. Um, I have been proud of most of my Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre shows. Yeah. And the reason is... They make people laugh and people come and see them. So 
uh, when I do the Edinburgh Fringe, I am looking at my ticket sales and I'm looking at my reviews. And really, the cumulative effect of all that feedback is what validates me as a creator. <laughs> it might be pathetic. The most important validation is when you do a show and the audience laughs and you know they've laughed in all the right places and that you were responsible for that. Yeah. So I've got a couple of shows that are favourites because they are a whole hour where exactly that happens in all the right places. So our show about Shakespeare, so the Scottish Falsetto of Socks to Shakespeare, is the most satisfying hour. I'm still performing that show. I performed it just last month because people ask for it and it works. Yeah. It's an hour which it doesn't date largely because it's about Shakespeare. Um, oh, we've come similarly close with our show uh, about superheroes, which I also still perform. And other shows haven't done badly in certainly at their time because yes. sometimes the topical yeah. material fades uh really hitting the mark being an hour that was spot on and i was proud of it at the time so i every time i do an hour-long show if it works in all the right ways i am proud and i look forward to being proud of the 2024 show which i haven't even started writing yet brilliant good answer now can i name one time that i could have curled up into a ball and let the universe swallow me whole I've done gigs where you die on your ass. I've mentioned earlier uh, uh, corporate gigs where uh, you know it's going to go badly and it does go badly. (laughs) There have been other gigs where you can see why it's gone badly. Uh, I'm very lucky with the Scottish Falsetto socks that I don't need to curl up into a ball because I'm already sat in a chair (laughs) and nobody can see my face. So if it doesn't go badly, I tuck my uh, stuff away at the end of the show without really making eye contact with anyone. It's not as painful as stand-up where your fellow comedians Fair really ignore yeah. you. Fair enough. And fingers crossed, it hasn't happened for a while. But um, I can remember a few instances where it really wasn't an ideal performance. One is when, at the Adelaide Fringe, where we performed in 2012, performed at the Adelaide Fringe for a whole month. It's brilliant. The only other festival you can perform for a whole month that I'm aware of. And... For a promotional thing, we performed in a bandstand. Wow. Now, for the Scottish Falsetto Stock Puppet Theatre, performing outdoors is not a good idea because basically my set, when it's erected, is a sail. <laughs> if there's the slightest gust of wind, we're flapping everywhere. But I've, I'd anchored everything down as best I could and I'd sealed myself off so I couldn't be seen from behind, which in a bandstand is a thing that's going to happen. But the field that we were performing to, the park in which we were performing, it's just people with families and kids, little kids running about. It's a stupid place to try and do comedy. Anybody will tell you that, but we tried to do it. And so I'm sitting there performing and the kids, these six-year-old kids flock to the front of the bandstand and they're all mobbing the front. Luckily, there's railings to stop them getting to me or they would have got to me. And they start chanting, we can see your willy. Now, this was both factually inaccurate and unhelpful, and um, but memorable. I, I come away being able to tell everybody about the gig where six-year-olds were saying they could see my willy all the way through it, but it was not a great gig, no. and I remember that with no great comfort. I say it would take the wind out of your sails, obviously. Oh, <laughs> I wish it had. Name an item of memorabilia that I've acquired from the circuit. Do you know, there used to be a while 
a, a time way back where you could nick ashtrays. <laughs> Do you remember ashtrays, kids? Oh, kids listening now. You won't remember ashtrays. Back in the day, you used to get them in hotels and you used to get them in pubs and they'd have all the logos on. And there was a time in 2002 where my venue, the Gilded Balloon, was sponsored by Marlborough Cigarettes. No. I didn't bother to nick an ashtray from them, but I've still got the matchbooks. Yeah. Um, that you would get. And the double page spread in the programme, which is sponsored by, it was the last hurrah of the cigarette sponsors before cigarette sponsorship became illegal and then smoking indoors became illegal. And uh, I don't know where cigarette manufacturers go to spend their money nowadays because <laughs> they used to have tons to throw out. I used to do a comedy club in um, Bristol. I used to MC it, uh, the Comedy Box in Bristol. And I negotiated the sponsorship by Lambert and Butler. Wow. Uh, the Lambert and Butler Comedy Box it was. And the organiser got, I think, 15 grand. He put down a deposit on a house as a result of the sponsorship that I negotiated. I got a small percentage of that. Anyway, so I've taken, I've taken tobacco money. <laughs> I've taken the money, money from killers. <laughs> I might as well have taken a percentage of OxyContin. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, if you've not watched the TV series Painkiller, OxyContin was basically heroin sold to kids yeah. um, officially. And uh, it was a very bad thing. Yes, yes but anyway, it was. Fags were also a bad thing. Uh, kids today won't know about fags, but they were really big in the 20th century where I come from. And yeah, I, I've, yeah. Uh, so just, I'm now, uh, obviously I grew up in the year where everyone was smoking in pubs and things, but now if... If I smell or hear, see someone smoking, it's a bit of a genuine surprise these days. It's a bit like, oh, that still goes yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, it will historically become a thing that people did. Yes. And you'll find it really hard to explain. It'll be like that Bob Newhart sketch. Do you remember the Bob Newhart sketch where he's uh, uh, he, someone's on the phone to Francis Drake? And so, so what have you brought back, Frank? Um, leaves. You know, come fall. We've got quite a lot of leaves here. Yeah. We're kind of up to our necks in. What? What do you do? You stuff them in a pipe and you set fire to them. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, it's funny when Bob Newhart does yeah. it, but it's yeah. also, it will be, it'll be like a Shakespearean gag. Yeah. You'll have to explain the gag. Yeah. Yeah. People really did yeah. stuff leaves into a, 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 a piece of paper and they set light to it and then sucked it. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> you, you're gonna, you're you, right. you, you can have to stop the show on stage and go, right, just to set some context here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's 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 strange that how that's so changed overnight. Um, just so dramatic, wasn't it? Just suddenly, no smoking inside, and and all that other, and then smokers seem to almost disappear off the face of the earth. I mean, there obviously are people who still smoke because there's still things in supermarkets where you go and pay huge sums of money for a packet of cigarettes, but you you just don't see. People yes, smoking. and there's vaping. Vaping is in an interesting um, area of not part of my life. It's there. It's up there with TikTok. Mm. It, that is to say, I have TikTok and I have YouTube and I'm on TikTok and I'm on YouTube. But can I get an audience? No. Do I speak the same language as everybody else no. on it? Obviously, I don't. Uh, same with vaping. I see people, when people used to walk around vaping and I'd be handing out flyers to them at the Edinburgh Fringe, I used to compliment them on their nice sonic screwdriver. It's an alien thing because... <laughs> Fag smoking, the significant thing about fag smoking is it looked cool. Phil Noir, 
played the largest part in this, <laughs> making Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall look cool. <laughs> and you would have people lit by the light of their own fag. And yes, then you would cleverly right. backlight the, right. the um, smoke as it rose up. And comics played a part in that as well, because it's one of those things it was, it was cool to draw, cool to do. But... Um, Vaping will never be that. Vaping just looks like you're so desperate, you need to suck a Robox cock. Yeah, you're right. Although it has made me thought, has anyone done a sketch mimicking film noir where someone puffs out their vape and disappears in a cloud of smoke for five minutes and you can't see anything? (laughs) Because that seems to be a thing, doesn't it? I've been behind cars that I thought were on fire. The amount of smoke pouring out the window going, is is that good? (laughs) Is that a good vape? Yeah. Surely a it's, comedy sketch, uh, if nothing uh, else. It, it's a curious thing. But like all things of fashion and age, yes. they look different depending on who you are. I'm an old person, and therefore things largely done by young people look slightly ridiculous to me. In the same way as I look slightly ridiculous and distasteful to them. Uh, I remember being in my 20s and finding the existence of people um, over the age of 50 unpalatable <laughs> you know when you're in your 20s you think logan's run is a, a pretty sensible idea <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. because when i was in my 20s you know old people were benny hill yeah you know old people were mike yarwood old people were the conservative cabinet i am now older than almost everybody in the current conservative cabinet that yeah. is it's horrifying, isn't it? Yeah. I think my I've covered this with a couple of other people, but markers such as when a, a film is re-released as a thirtieth or fortieth or whatever anniversary, you know, uh, version on. Not they really release things anymore; it's all streaming. But it's just when that happens, and you're like, okay, well, that can't be right. And then you track it back and go, oh no, no, that is actually right, isn't it? It was actually thirty years ago that I saw that film, and. Oh, I'm so old now. It's not. <laughs> and you're right. The Logan's Run yes. thing. Absolutely. Now, now I'm a I've I've long I've long since uh, given on trying to hang on to my youth. <laughs> yes. I am getting used getting used to this is what happens. But, but I agree um, with you now. I've and and I I think I think it's a thing to revel in as well yes. because you know turns out you don't get wisdom with age. You get wisdom by studying and reading and learning yes. more. Kids, it just doesn't automatically happen. Yes. That's why you can get to my age and be as dumb as you were in your 30s because that's really when you stopped learning Uh, but i appreciate the way you're able to contextualize things through history i'm able now to go back through generations of things happening again and again waves of feminism as was happening in the 1980s when i was learning feminism i was learning left-wing politics and um, then in the 90s when an entire generation said no we're going to have loaded and we're going to pretend we're being ironic about being sexist is that okay and uh, the whole generation said oh yeah no that's fine oh and it'll also be all right for david Badil to black himself up on a football program we forgot all the advances of the 80s in the 90s, and then we relearned them in the 2010s. Yeah. And so it goes. Waves of feminism. And I realise now all those old people who were appearing on discussion programmes and Radio 4 in the 1980s and telling me about how what it was like in the 1920s and 30s when they had invented feminism and they had invented left-wing politics and they'd invented modern art they'd invented all of the things that we were in the process of inventing for the first time and kids are in the process of inventing for the first time now they're doing just stop oil we had green in common they're doing me too we had 
Greenham Common. I don't know what else we had in the 1980s, but we did have these yes, things. Yeah, um, and you, ju you just get sort of a reeling back, you get a, a re-entrenchment. Uh, we had um, uh, the movement of the gay liberation movement of the 1970s, which brings you to top of the pops in, the in 1984, when uh, everything is like, we'll never go back to the old days. It'll never be like that again. And then we had AIDS, which just drove everybody back to where they'd been in the 1970s. Yes. And so it goes. But hey, it's waves. I think you're right. And and just, just to be very clear, now I've reached that age, uh, Logan's run is a stupid idea and everyone should ignore it. <laughs> I just want to be very clear. I'd have been dead for 20 I years. I just want to be very clear on that point. <laughs> um, right. We have three more questions left. Uh, what one thing would I not tell up-and-coming funny people so they could suffer like I did? I wouldn't tell them about corporate gigs. I'd let them learn. <laughs> Outside of shout. comedy, what else do I enjoy doing? Uh, well, I have been very lucky to be able to make my living from doing the things that I love. I wrote and drew comics as a kid. Then I got to work in comics. Then when comics went tits up, because I was working for Marvel when they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy at the end of the 90s, I went from com comics to comedy. Mm. I actually was better off doing stand-up comedy than I was working for comics that didn't exist. And by the end of the 90s, most of the comics I'd worked for didn't exist because I'd worked on comics that were spin-offs from TV shows, which didn't exist anymore. Um, I remember ringing up my editor, who'd been my editor on uh, Red Wolf's magazine, and he was selling orthopedic furniture. There was no work for the editors. The editors I'd worked for for Marvel that had to become ex-editors. Um, because the industry shrunk and that happens with all of the creative industries yes, yes and um so what would be my ideal career in an ideal world whatever i'd worked on would become so big that it kept on going and of course it's possible uh, for people to uh, become incredibly rich from comics uh, i just wasn't one of those people you know my stuff never got made into movies mm. and hasn't yet been made into movies. Uh, the movie yes. of the Midsummer Night's Dream Team could still happen. The the stage musical of Prince of Denmark Street, um, you know, I've hey, I've written the tunes for you, but no. Uh, <laughs> until those things happen, you know, I'm one of those jobbing people, which most of us are in my business. But it's very hand to mouth. Um, in recent years, they invented the, the, the term the gig economy, yes. um, and and it is indeed dreadful that people are on insecure contracts, working for minimum wage, delivering food and working in uh, many dead-end jobs. And, you know, the people at the top of Ikea and Amazon and Deliveroo are making fortunes yes. off the back of people who are not secure. However, I'm in a business which has never been secure. Stand-up comedy, never secure. No. It's comics, comics where you work for hire. Comics where if you wrote a Marvel comic book, and drew a Marvel comic book, which just got made into a movie. What do you get? You get five grand and an invite to the premiere if you are lucky. And most people don't even get that. So um, I've worked in the most precarious industries because the more glamorous it is, the more everybody wants to do it. And the more everybody wants to do it, if you've got any problems, there's another guy waiting to take your job. So... Yes. Yeah, it's, it, what do you do? It's interesting. Uh, a, a comic I've interviewed was making a point about you're, you don't necessarily notice it, but people who were maybe at the top of the pole or on top of the game, they suddenly sort of disappear and you don't really notice. They just suddenly stop being on TV or so. And it's not necessarily because their content has become unacceptable. Sometimes it's just people have moved on and that doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And so you've got someone who's been, you know, 
possibly doing some big gigs, possibly being on telly, possibly whatever, you know, some big, big hitters. And then suddenly the, the world moves on or people move on and, and they're not wanted and the phone stops ringing and you think, oh, it's just, I mean, it's such a torturous world, isn't it? You, ha- you have to keep ploughing on because that's what you have to do. But yeah, like you say, it's, it's never been secure. You don't, you don't say, I'm going to work in comedy and then someone gives you a wage every month. It's just not, <laughs> it's not how it works, is it? Exactly. I mean, the job for life is an increasingly rare thing and has been for a long time. But hey, kids, if you're listening, um, go to the best university, get the best degree and uh, work in banking or become an accountant. (laughs) And then you can be like all of my mates who are now at retirement age. And I've got I've had more than one friend use the phrase, I've got all this money and I don't know what to do with it. Oh, to have such problems. But that's it. Uh, they've been doing jobs that they didn't particularly enjoy for possibly 40 years. Yeah. And um, then they end up empty nesters and uh, wondering what they did with those 40 years. I can, at the very least, show you what I did with those yeah. 40 years because I've got the posters if it was a show. I've got the DVD for some of the shows. I've got a book if it was a book. I've got the comic pages if it was a comic. I can tell you what I was doing for those 40 years. And, you know, I'm proud of quite a bit of it yeah I, I, some of it's rubbish but some, <laughs> some of it's brilliant that's very honest no i i yeah i think that's that's so true you've done what you love so to me that's a that's a bigger win than lots i know lots of money is always a you know everyone conceives it as a lovely thing to have but if you've got nothing no experience in your life uh, positive experiences in your life i just think i'd rather have that to look back on than money um in the grand scheme uh, yes I mean, materialism and how we relate to it is a difficult thing. I am quite middle class. I've always thought of myself as working class, but I realised I was quite middle class, and that shapes the um, lack of materialism because if you always had enough, you know, lower middle class, you always had enough. We weren't struggling. I had no hardship in the background. And so I never would really treasure, say, a pair of sneakers, which you'd, you'd... idolized and you'd aspired to Uh, but i can understand there are people who see these things in the window and it gives you a name it gives you a target it gives you uh, something to which you can aspire well i just aspired to do more of the stuff that i you know i wrote and drew funny things i said funny things i wrote songs and was in a band and made people entertained i only ever wanted to do more of that and as a kid you think well, some people appear to be getting paid for that, and so that'll do. Living in a palace, nah. In fact, I watch so many TV shows now, which are all about demonstrating how being as rich as somebody on Succession or being rich as, as the guy who did all the drug dealing in Painkillers just makes you an unhappy person who everybody hates. And Simon Cowell has recently sold his house for £30 million pounds less than it was worth. Can you imagine mm. that? Because people kept breaking in. Well... Isn't it great to not have Simon Cowell's problems? Yeah, and they. Um, I was talking recently to um, uh, someone who does house clearances, and uh, it's just fascinating insight into the real world of what he deals with. Because I thought he'd say, obviously, you know, the bereaved people will come in and pick out a couple of prize trinkets, and you know, and then I'll come in and just move the bulky stuff. And he's like, no, not really. Most of the time, they'll just phone up and say, "Can you come and clear the house?" You know, and he said, "There's." I've been in places that have got some, like you say, top of the range or some really expensive stuff, but people just aren't bothered by that. What They were bothered by the person. They weren't bothered by yeah. the stuff and things they had on show. And so he just goes in yeah. and 
guts a property, yeah, takes the bits he can sell, and the rest goes to the tip. And it's like, so yeah. what? What was important to that person was look at this very expensive, I don't know, wardrobe or or TV or, or whatever it is mm-hmm. I've got. And the people around him were like, we don't care about that stuff. We we care about you, you know, not your yes. stuff. Age helps that because, yeah. of course, people refer to these things like the car and the house and the jewellery as status symbols. Yeah. A status is just where you are at that moment. And to th- the thought of having a status symbol, which would tell everybody where I was in 1986, <laughs> that's a really, that's Ozymandias right there, just slightly less poetic. You know, um, if I had a big, if, if I'd had like the state-of-the-art mobile phone in 1988. Is that a thing to look back on? No, that's just a slightly embarrassing thing you'll see in a Polaroid photo. Look, you had a phone the size of a brick. It was a status symbol. Oh, right, good. Well, you know, your status changes. Most of these millionaires go bankrupt. They have tragic ups and downs in the story. The status, no, it's just a a marker along the way. Was it? I I don't want to um, get it wrong. It was a, was it Benny Hill? No, I don't want to say the wrong one, but there was somebody who, as far as you're concerned, had done very well and made a lot of money, but they they died in, basically had no furniture in the house apart from the chair they died in, and no one knew they were dead for a week. These are not uncommon stories. Uh, I read, I, I read a lot now of biographies and uh, sometimes autobiographies. And Hollywood Babylon was a, a very influential one uh, forty years ago, where um, forgotten his name, but he he writes all those stories of of the 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 Hollywood legends from uh, Fatty Arbuckle yeah. uh, on down, where you know behind the scenes it was all pretty tragic and pathetic. Yeah. Uh, with the trappings of wealth, but the trappings of wealth were usually draped over um, a framework of misery. Yes. And so, um, you know, there are some things to aspire to and there are some things not to aspire to. But when I work with kids in schools, uh, the role models that they have are sadly, um, you know, rich rappers and rich footballers, mm. uh, especially uh, if you're kids from, you know, uh, uh, inner city uh, background and environment and it is understandable and it's uh, long been the case but uh, you know it's it's not great but what do you do no no you can't live or die on it I've had um, I've said this in another podcast but I've had scripts that have made it to the finalist you know sort of final count if you like in competitions and you think that's it Hollywood will be on the phone tomorrow to get it made and then absolutely nothing happens and the world moves on and you move on and and that's just the way of it, you know. Um, well, yes, and as writers, uh, you will have been reading a lot in the wake of the uh, Writers Guild of America strike and the SAG AFTRA yes, strike yes, that goes along with it. The true stories of people's lives, mm. the showrunners and writers on American series who are very poorly paid. Yes very insecure, the situation that had been brought about by streaming, which has made the situation worse, not that the situation was great anyway. Writers have, uh, I've read so many writers' uh, stories in recent times that, you know, people who've been in Oscar, uh, worked on Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning films, Mm. and they're still struggling to live in, they can't even afford to live in LA, they live 
uh, far yes, away. Absolutely. Just because this business is, you know, it's brutal. like I say, the more glamorous it is, the more you shouldn't want. <laughs> it's brutal. There, uh, I read, I did, a, uh, I'll be careful I say this, so I don't know how true it is, but I read something the other day that there are certain streaming channels that will put things in cinemas long enough for it to qualify for the awards ceremony, but not long enough for it to mean they have to pay the people involved more money. Apparently there's something in the rules about if you put it on for X amount of time, it qualifies for, for the awards. And if you put, if you pull it before that date, you don't have to give the people any more money. And that's just so incredibly cynical. I mean, obviously it's the reality. Well, but. yes, the, the, the business has always been cynical, mm. but along the way, there've always been people fighting for our rights. Uh, the comic book industry lagged way behind this uh, <laughs> because the comic book industry had less money in it. Uh, by the time uh, you get union representation, that's usually uh, synchronizes with the death knell. Uh, VX, VFX uh, operators, on Disney movies and Marvel movies have now unionized. Yeah. That just means that uh, Marvel movies are about to go down the pan. And Disney um, is uh, being threatened with a lawsuit I was reading about this week, which <laughs> may cause them significant difficulties. I can't remember the details, so I won't quote them. But anyway, this week, Disney lawsuit. Let's see what happens to Disney Plus, the channel, in the next year, because um, uh, there's a lot of things that are going to make things harder for the people who, at the top, have been running these businesses that don't make money and, at the bottom, have been paying us not yeah, enough money to do them. There was someone, I think it was Saga, someone in Sagafra had put out a post. Um, it was the CEOs and how much they earn. So let's, I can't remember the exact figures, but let's say they earn $25 million a year just for simply existing as the CEO for some reason. Um, yeah. And then they put the amount they actually pay out was something like 0.008% um, of the money that's made is actually paid to the creator. You go, that's just insane. I mean, I, I'm not expecting them to say, we'll give you 80% of all the money because I appreciate we live in the real world. But 0.008%, you go, that's just, I never realised it was that bad. I knew it wasn't great. But when you see that yeah. written down, you go, yeah, that, I mean, that's just intolerable, isn't it? And and that's why I stand, stand with them on the strike. Uh, it's just, that's... Yeah. Just too much. It's so, kids, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you want to be an accountant, uh, you want to get into uh, <laughs> yes. business, it's not really you want to get onto the board. Yeah. You, you, you want to get onto uh, the board, uh, start, start working for an agent, then one day you'll be an agent. Be, be at the top of the tree. De never be the talent. Never. <laughs> never if you've got a talent, bury it. <laughs> Don't ever... Let anyone know you've got talent. If there's a career officer out there, if there's any child with talent, chop that talent off right now. <laughs> you, you, you tell them to go into the, the business. Yeah, we're not, we're not doing a great the job. Follow convincing. the money, kids. Follow the Follow money. Follow the money, yeah. We're not doing a great job of convincing people, are we? <laughs> yeah. Also, kids, don't read, otherwise you'll start understanding things like irony. Yes, yes. Oh, don't, don't start me on that. Right, next, uh, or next uh, penultimate question. Oh, have I not done them all? Have we done them all? What is one question you want to be asked that no one ever thinks to ask you? I have answered 20 questions that nobody asked. <laughs> that's fair enough. That's a good, that's a very good shout. Yeah. Well played. Um, yeah. No, I've gone, I've gone through the list. Go on, Andy. Any more questions? No. Because actually, uh, you've got no, a lot to edit. I, I, I don't know how long you intend these, these uh, recordings to be, but we've done an hour and a quarter. Yeah, they uh, tend to be around an hour. I've had one that's nearly two hours at the moment, but... Um, an hour is good. Um, if you is, 
Is there anything you would like to promote that's coming up? I am intending to put these out. Quite you know, ha had we been speaking a couple of weeks ago, I would have plugged the Kickstarter for my new book, Richard III, my newest graphic novel. But the Kickstarter has just finished for that, oh. and it's successfully achieved its target uh, many fold it was three times the target amount was achieved so i now have to finish drawing the book <laughs> and then we have to publish it get it out there and i look forward to receiving the critical acclaim plaudits and movie contract yes that absolutely my previous books somehow were denied yes i i will put that put that in the, the ether now Let, let's see that made into a colossal multi-billion pound film uh, once the strikes are over and everyone's being paid fairly, sort of. Yes. Brilliant. Well, yes. Kev, thank you so much. Uh, you've been so generous with your time and your and your knowledge, and uh, I really appreciate you spending this time. Um, uh, I would say we try we're trying to be positive about it all, but we're also being a bit realistic about you know you've got to be realistic in this world, um, in this business. Um, uh, yeah, I, I would actually just to address the ironic. Uh, bitter <laughs> sounding statements I was making earlier. Kids, follow your dreams. Yes. I am going this coming weekend to another one of the comic festivals that I attend regularly, where I shall be standing behind a table with my books, which I shall be flogging, and, and I do a, a roaring trade flogging my books to uh, families and kids who come, and most importantly, seeing all the other creators with all of their work. And this is where, in, in the world of comic books, it happens. Uh, it's self-publishing, and the new bright young things are doing the newest, brightest, youngest thing. The least exciting work comes out of Marvel or DC or Image Comics. They're made by old people for old readers. But exciting stuff is made by new young kids. They may not make their fortune from it. They may have to hold down other jobs while they're doing it. But yes. they do the work, which is important. Some of them then get the breaks. I mean, if you see a book like Bonnie versus Monkey, which is the new bestseller amongst kids' books by the excellent Jamie Smart. It's taken Jamie Smart 20 years of jobbing comics work for, uh, amongst others, the Dandy and the Beano. And I can tell you, I know how badly he was being paid when he was working with the Dandy and the Beano, because I worked for the Dandy and the Beano. <laughs> um, but he has now made it to uh, a real breakthrough success with these books, and that Brilliant. comes by doing the work for love first and without thinking, I'm going to do this work to make a fortune. You don't yes. think like that. You think, I've got something that I'm quite good at. I want to share this with the world. And that's what you do. That's what comedians do. Comedians stand up on stage and you stand up on stage and you don't get paid to begin with. You stand up on stage, you don't get paid and you get publicly humiliated. That's what the job actually is. Yes. It's being insulted for a living. And then after a while, some people end up on Taskmaster. Some people don't. Some people just will do great things and say important stuff. So follow your dreams, kids. Yeah, 100% agree with that. Do 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 follow your dreams because you want to look back on a life well-lived. Um, cliche maybe, but it's true. Right. So in that case, a big thank you to Kev for that interview. Uh, if you'd like to know more, there will be some links in the show notes. But for now, this has been an original podcast production for Like My Teeth Productions. Thank you for listening.